Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. John Stadden is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Professor of Biology Emeritus at Duke University. His new book uh, is Science in an Age of Unreason, which is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Stadden. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, you begin by posing a provocative question, and a, and a huge one, uh, and, and I'll give you 10 seconds to answer it, okay? <laughs> Has secular humanism made science a religion? There is a whole lot of content and concept and history embedded in that question. Can you just give us actually a, a, an introduction to the issue? Yeah, I mean, this issue arose because of, um, I had wrote a paper years ago called Faith, Fact, and Behaviorism, uh, and I pointed out that religions have really three aspects to them. They have the historical aspect, the flood and so on. Um, then they have the, the uh, spiritual aspect, belief in angels, God, whatever. And finally, they have the moral aspect. And my point was that the only th thing that matters from a political point of view is the moral aspect, the guide to action, hmm. what people can do and what they can't do. And my point was that secular humanists, and this seemed totally obvious to me at the time, also have guides to action. They believe some things you should do, some things you shouldn't do, and so on. So in that sense, religion and secular humanism is on a, a plane, on the same plane. Well, I made this point in a blog, as I recall, and I got a very nasty uh, response from an evolutionary biologist whose work I knew, a chap called Jerry Coyne, respected fellow, yeah. And he really got very upset about this. And so we had a little debate in Quillette, I think it was, back and forth about this. By the end of it, um, we reached some sort of rapprochement. <laughs> but anyway, the point is that there's no, no reason to distinguish between, let us say, a religious football coach who wants to pray on a pitch and is penalized for it, versus the secular humanist who says um, that trans women should be treated as women, even though they're biological men. I mean, they're both matters of faith. Hmm. Well, I won't say any more about that, but that was that was the genesis of this whole thing. And, and that gets down to, to the, that, that, that directs us toward an answer uh, of, of whether secular humanism has made science uh, a religion. Now, as you proceed into this discussion, and, and actually the moral the moral issue comes up. Some conservatives have said that secular humanism is really or, or really leads to nihilistic relativism. But you you don't agree 
Why not? Well, I think uh, uh, most secular humanists have a set of beliefs. The difference between their beliefs and their moral code and the religious one is it's not written down. It's informal. <laughs> and that's both a strength and a weakness. It's a strength politically because I'm just following the science, you know, without having anything concrete that people can point to and say, well, is this the science? Um, so it's a strength in that sense, but it's a weakness in the sense that it's very easy to change the beliefs. People can change their beliefs and so on. And in that sense, I th think it's a little bit of a gateway to nihilism. Yeah. And we, we've seen that in the progression of um, political correctness, wokeness, whatever you call it. I mean, I... Uh, this... Uh, this may be a little off point, but I was listening to somebody the other day who was pointing out that many uh, works of art, novels and so on that were published a few years ago would be unpublishable now. So the standards have changed. Yeah. The example he gave is Alexander McCall Smith's wonderful uh, um, ladies' detective agency, yeah. Miss Motsway and so on. Precious Ramotsway, I think was the name. They're wonderful, wonderful novels. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, um, somebody was talking to an eminent, uh, I think it was, um, God, I'm thinking, I'm blocking on the lady's name, but it was, it was a well-known writer. She was talking to a senior uh, executive in, in a respected publishing house, and they were saying, it, it, this publishing house is from this lady's, Landa Shriver was the lady. From her point of view, it's probably the best one, the most open to new things. So, and he said, we absolutely could not could not publish this book. Now, whereas, you know, 10, 20 years ago, whenever it was popular, no problem. And it reminded me, actually, of an even older novel that I dare say would, would be unpublishable now. And that's Pamela. Pamela <laughs> Virtue Rewarded, right? Yeah, yeah. Written by Richardson, like the first novel in the English language. But here it's a middle-aged guy writing about a young girl from the perspective of a young girl. How impossible is that? Uh, so it, it, in that sense, the thing, um, the unrootedness of it all could yeah. lead to, to a kind of nihilistic um, nonsense. Yeah, but, but, but let me... Let me ask you. I mean, you you say not written down. The moral rules are not written down, and so they're they're they are more changeable. But does that make them any less binding at any particular time? Uh, I don't think so. No, I think I think uh, p people are certainly to to willing to con consult their latest uh, fashionable uh, <laughs> blogger or, or website to. To, to be directed what to do. I mean, all the words that are unacceptable and so on, like the word mother apparently is unacceptable, master is unacceptable. I mean, that would have been regarded as utter nonsense a few years ago, but pe people buy into it immediately. I mean, I'm I'm absolutely amazed by it. I, I think in real estate uh, uh, material, you can't use the word master bedroom anymore. Yes, apparently. I think that's out. Yeah, certainly an engineering master and slave are absolutely out and so on. <laughs> OK, OK. Well, let's turn to science. You mentioned uh, a particular term, scientific imperialism. What is that phenomenon? Well, I th this is a, uh, um, something I, I came up, up with again, I think, in the same article, uh, Faith, Fact and Behaviorism. It's the idea that science guides you about 
everything everything can be decided by the method of science. I mean, I think in the uh, 18th century Enlightenment, there were a, a certain number of people, French the, uh, writers and so on, who thought that reason was the secret to everything, that reason could, could solve everything. Um, if they paid more attention to another Enlightenment figure, David Hume, they would have perhaps learned how wrong this is. I mean, Hume made a wonderful distinction between fact and value. And I, yeah. to me, it seems unassailable. And science is about facts. It's about facts. And facts don't tell you what to do about those facts unless you have a value system. And that value system comes from somewhere else. You know, there's a wonderful quote from him that a reason is, uh, must be always in the service of the passions that's on a human uh, quote, quote. And I think that's true. And if people understand that, then they will immediately discount claims of what I called scientific imperialism, that science can guide you. Every Once you've got a value, of course, uh, you, use, you can use science to guide you. I mean, another metaphor is that science is a map, not a destination, okay? It tells you how to get to places, but it doesn't tell you what places to get to. That seems, in retrospect, pretty obvious, actually. Yeah, yeah. You go back to to the, the Enlightenment and, and before with another term, uh, the naturalistic fallacy. Uh, what What is the naturalistic fallacy? And maybe I should ask, how widespread is it now? Uh, that's a good question, because I, actually, I, I was recently uh, encountered this issue again. There's a group of people who correspond with Jordan Peterson, and I, I occasionally get to see what they're saying. And the naturalistic fallacy, I'm not sure who coined the term, but what what it amounts to is what has evolved naturally is good. What has evolved naturally is good. And in one sense, obviously absurd, because one thing that's evolved naturally is the tendency for males to be aggressive when they're competing for females, for example. And it is not acceptable to kill your rival and so forth. Uh, at least in the current culture, um, other cultures uh, maybe you could. But anyway, so uh, not, hey, hey, uh, who are you to judge, Professor Stadden? Well, that, who am I to judge? Indeed, <laughs> who, who am I to judge? Uh, depends on how good the girl was, I suppose. Anyway, these sorts of things, you know, are not everything that's natural is good. That's the naturalistic fallacy. On the other hand, one chap in this discussion group I was reading the other day made a good point. He said that um, uh, if you accept the Humean position, all values are equally unprovable. All values are equally unprovable. Um, therefore, if you've got to pick one, maybe the natural one's the one to pick. You know, yeah. Maybe the natural one's the one to pick. So, you know, the impetus of revenge, well, you know, everybody has that. Go for it, you know. Um, so he was aware of the naturalistic fallacy, this chap, but he, he, he said, we've got to have some sort of values to guide our lives by, which is certainly true. If you're a secular humanist, you not only do not believe in religion, you probably abhor religion. And this is my, one of my beefs with uh, sort of, uh, what one might call uh, atheist fundamentalists. Of, of, there are a few around, you know, the four horsemen or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, 
yeah. that used to exist or of that of that strand. I could never understand how they could have that position. You can't know that there's no God. You might be skeptical about it. Might be an agnostic. Anyway, so that that's my that's my uh, profound take on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you got a quick question uh, off off topic, uh, but about Peterson. Do you think Peterson is solid in in his science? I mean, not 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 his his lectures and all uh, more specifically, but is the science that he cites and relies on solid? Well, that's a very good question. I I, I, I like Jordan Peterson. I like his uh, what he has to say, his straightforwardness and so on. He's a wonderful guy. But he has a, a, a view of personality psychology in which I have to say I am not an expert. My, my expertise is in learning in animals rather than people. Um, he he's, seems very confident about his psychology. My guess is it's as well-founded as anything else in that terrible, terrible area. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've just been reading a paper by a famous female, uh, uh, I got into it by a female psychologist, which seems to be so far from science, I can't even begin to measure the distance. It's really a political tract yeah. disguised as science. Jordan's psychology is, very, uh, is not like that. I, I think he... Yeah. Uh, he makes a sincere effort to understand how personality is divided and so on. And I ju just have to say, it seems to me as plausible as anybody else's. Yeah. Well, uh, social psychology, you know, the validation replication crisis is is <laughs> very serious. We'll, we'll, we'll put it that way. You, you are concerned about science drifting from, quote, its enlightenment moorings. Uh, and one cause you identify is simply that we have too many scientists. What's the, what's, what's the problem with that? Well, it's, it's, it's a combination of problems. Um, if you look at the history of science, you find that it, it was very intellectually diverse. It wasn't socially diverse. They were all middle-class white men, you know, Western men. But it was intellectually very diverse. The sources of support for it were very diverse. Um, you know, it was a, a charitable institution here, a patron there, and so on, a sinecure there. So a very diverse uh, source of support, and that's essential to science. Science is basically a trial and error process, and, and you've got to have a system which is tolerant of, tr of, of errors, as tolerant of errors. Yeah. Well, now... I think uh, since this report, um, Vannevar Bush's, you know, the Boundless Frontier report post-World War II, uh, science has been treated, the production of science has been treated like the production of widgets. Uh, if you double the money, you double the widgets, okay? And so more and more money has been put into science, has become some of it very, very expensive. Um, and so you have a lot of scientists. My contention is that the, at any given time, the frontier may be boundless, but it's not infinite. That is to say, at any given time, there are only a certain number of soluble problems that are available. And, it, and I, I'm not the only one, I think, to make this point. And it, the, our system has increased the number of scientists 
beyond that point. That's one. That's one point. So you've got people chasing unsoluble problems in a system because of the now very uniform funding system. It's a monopolistic funding system. Right? In my area, there's really one place I can get money, and so on and so on. And that's true for a lot of people. So you have a monopolistic funding system, which is um, intolerant, very intolerant of error. If you have a grant for five years, and five years is a long time, three years is the usual time, and you, all of your experiments fail, you are in deep trouble. You're in deep trouble. You will not get another grant. Um, uh, uh, equally dangerous is coming up with things which are disbelieved by a majority of your colleagues and so on. Dissent and, and error are, 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 are penalized in the, present, in the present system. So in a way, that's what I mean by the number of scientists. There are too many scientists. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. The, the, and, and if you don't have the diverse funding sources, if, if things are dominated so much by, say, the National Science Foundation, then peer review can't really overcome that 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 problem is i mean you you say that dissent becomes disqualifying it can be i mean the problem the pro there are two things that i would say the, the problem with peer review i think people are totally honest and so on first of all it is monopolistic most times your research goes to one little committee there are two or three people who are considered to be experts in your area and all they have to do is not condemn your work, but ex fail to express enthusiasm about it. The competition is so great that uh, that's enough to, to, to uh, um, knock down your proposal. All it huh. takes is a lack of enthusiasm. At least that, when the payoff rate is you know, 10, 15% and so on, that's all it takes. Uh, and the 10, 15% number is a byproduct of the number of scientists. <laughs> they increase beyond the funding available. I want to say one thing that to me is quite really very alarming. Uh, it's a little bit on the side, but it deals with the National Science Foundation. I was shocked a couple of years ago to discover that the National Science Foundation gives millions and millions of dollars to projects that are social justice, not science. They're social justice, not science. For example... Uh, a pair of young women at a famous university just got a grant for $10 million. And the aim of the grant, the only aim of the grant, was to increase the number of women in computer science. To increase the number of women in computer science. Now, there are two possible justifications for that, or have some bearing on science. One is if women are discriminated against. You know, it's harder for women to qualify in computer science. Well, I'm not, no, there's no evidence... No evidence for that. And in any case, the solution to that would be to abolish the discrimination. 
uh, rather than just increase the number, right? The second thing, the second uh, um, uh, justification would be it's uh, somehow women were better than men at computer science. Again, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. So here, here we have a totally social justice thing that somebody thinks somewhere that they should be, computer scientists should be 50% female for no discernible reason and literally millions of dollars yeah. are being devoted to this and nobody's crying about it as far you, as I can you, you mentioned the field of psychology. Do you know that two-thirds of psychology PhDs go to females? I think we need a, a, an NSF grant to examine how we could get more men to get PhDs in, in psychology. Do you agree, Professor Stadden? Absolutely. I mean, this is so clearly <laughs> a, a, a necessary social justice objective. I, I, I'm ordering the T-shirt right, right now as we speak. I mean, of course, it's obviously nonsense, but millions of dollars go to this, and those millions could perhaps go to some dissenting scientists or something like that. Right. Now, you, you discuss sociology in particular as an example of a discipline that has slid into this uh, science decay. Uh, what, what happened to sociology over the course of the 20th century? <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good question. I mean, I give examples. It's, it's yeah. overtaken by political, political matters. I mean, another example, it's really economics rather than sociology, just came to my attention. I wrote something about it uh, a few months ago. Imagine, and this is for this scenario, imagine you have a field of science. You have a phenomenon you want to explain. Okay, call it A. Phenomenon A has two kinds of causes, X and Y. So you want to study the effects of X and the effects of Y. Somebody comes along and says, no, I am going to study A looking only at X, only at X. Um, I can assure you that Y, y really has no effect. Well, you would demand proof, right? The uh, negative proof, very hard to prove something. No effect and so on. You demand proof. Okay, how can such a field exist? Well, there is such a field. There is such a field, and it's called stratification economics. You ever heard of stratification economics? I, I actually haven't. Well, uh, shame on you. It was created in 2005 but, uh, by someone here, right here at Duke University. And in 2022, this gentleman is complaining uh, that it's not getting the respect it deserves. Well, what is stratification economics? A, the thing they're studying is wealth differentials by race, race racial wealth differentials. What are the causes? Well, there are two causes, external constraints, right? Um, biases, laws, you know, bad racism, or that one side. The other side is, the other cause, is the capabilities of the individuals, their interests, their abilities, you know, the culture they grew up in and so on. Well, apparently that's not to be considered. No, nobody's, no. all we look at is racism. And um, this field, which was started in 2005, is still around. It's still around in economics. And yet it's obvious nonsense. It's based on an obviously nonsensical um, set of premises that one set of causes is, is real and the other set is not. And that's the sort of thing that happens in sociology. I'll give you another example. These are all so obvious. But um, the concept of systemic racism 
has, I think, exceeded COVID in its infectiousness. <laughs> it's to be found everywhere in every administration, in every college, in many, many businesses, and in the National Science Foundation. And when I first heard about systemic racism, which was several years ago, 1918, 17, something like that, I remember thinking, well, it, it, this is a sociological concept. How do you how do you measure it? How do you measure this systemic racism? What? Uh, well, the answer is you, you. There's only one measure I've been able to discern. Only one measure, and that is uh, racial disparities. Racial disparities. Yeah. Yeah. In, in wealth, in, in income, in health outcomes. So, the problem is, if you take uh, income disparities, for example, there are many other possible causes. There are many other possible causes. The culture of the people, uh, their uh, what they're interested in, what their abilities are, cognitive and otherwise, and so on. So you have to eliminate these before you can come up with something called systemic racism. Systemic racism is kind of a leftover. You know, we can't find any actual causes. We'll say, well, it's systemic, uh, and everybody will nod in, in in agreement. Well, there are, of course, many many causes for these things. And somehow they are ignored. So this is in the whole racial justice area. This is a, a, a virus that's taken over. We're going to ignore any kind of endogenous causes to do with the, the agency of people and so on. And we'll just consider all these terrible biases that society's uh, inflicting on people. You, you touched a moment ago upon cognitive uh, differences. And in the book... You turn to that delicate issue of racial differences, group averages differences right, right. in intelligence. Why is that so dangerous a topic? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, intelligence is, well, one, one way of saying it is intelligence is not a thing. Intelligence is not a thing. But IQ type tests have predictive value. That's why they exist. They have predictive value. They do predict how well uh, kids do in college and so on. That's one thing. The second thing is the toxicity of group differences, one might say. The toxicity of group differences. Um, and they are referred to all the time, all the time, all the time. But any educated person should know that a finding of differences between groups in wealth, cognitive ability, whatever you want, anything you can measure, poses questions. It does not provide an answer. It, a, a group different doesn't provide an answer. And yet, highly educated people, I, I got a uh, an email a few years ago from a very eminent man who is now, I think, the editor of Science Magazine, pointing to disparities and as if they were self-explanatory. Disparities were, in, in what? Well, disparities in a number of black people in uh, physics. Oh, example. okay, okay, okay. Physics is dominated by white men. That doesn't tell you anything. The only honest response to that is, so what? Yeah. So what? But people seem unable to give that response. Now, the, the fact, fact that a disparity exists by itself tells you nothing. It tells you nothing at all. What what you want to know is the cause. Why why are so many nurses women? You know. Yeah. yeah. We 
puzzled about that? I, you know, what's, is that a problem? <laughs> and so on. So you find, you know, a lot of basketball players are black. And I mean, it's just all, it's all, it's such an absurdity. It's such yeah. an absurdity. But, but for, for some, for some mindset, it's, it, it really is, well, I like the gentleman who, who wrote you the email. It's automatic. This is bad. And, yeah. and yeah. one cannot ask questions. One, I mean, and that's the anti-science nature of of the whole stupid thing. Um, Who was Trofim Lysenko? Uh, What did he do? (laughs) Well, now this is, I have to say one beef I had about the book. The book came out last year, but it was written two years before. (laughs) Commercial publishers are rather slow about this this sort of thing. Now everybody knows about Trofim Lysenko. I thought it was a novel thing when I put it in the book. Well, Lysenko, of course, was an affirmative action hire in Soviet Russia. He was a peasant. He was elevated above his abilities under account of his noble ancestry. And he came up with a wacko idea that was contrary to modern genetics. He thought that in growing plants, there was a kind of... a. a, a inheritance of acquired characteristics as well as Lamarckian inheritance. And nowadays we have actually, there is some evidence for Lamarckian type inheritance called epigenetics and so on. But in the context he uh, applied it, it was completely wrong. So he thought he could get two uh, uh, crops of corn in one year rather than just one. Make good he could improve the yield of agriculture by his his practice, which he called vernalization, as I call vernalization. Well, he tried this. The crops failed, and millions of people died of starvation. He caused basically he caused a famine. Uh, but because he was a, a protege of uh, Joseph Stalin, uh, he succeeded, and I think he was still around in 1946, something like that. So he never he never suffered for his errors, hmm. uh, but the Soviet people did in big time. And what I see now is something on the same order that this these uh, group disparities are taken at face value. The, the false assumption is made that groups are all equal, so that in a fair society they will all be equally represented in every profession, which is a t- utter nonsense, total nonsense. But that's accepted on faith, so that when someone like this gentleman we were talking about says uh, physics is dominated by white men, uh, everybody clutches their pearls, you know, <laughs> and gets all upset about it, even though it's a nonsensical, nonsensical uh, reaction. The book is Science in an Age of Unreason. Professor Stadden, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.